Well, good morning. I want to say, well, I want to acknowledge this morning how much we've already been led in worship through song, <laughs> through proclamation. Ryan preached a small, very good theological sermon in his offertory prayer, and we're so lucky to be at a place with so much richness and depth. And I even saw our orchestra members during this last song using their other instrument, <laughs> putting down the violin, and I saw them singing along with the choir. So. We're just really blessed to have everyone here, um, those online that make the church the church, all of us together that make First Baptist Arlington. It's a special place and I'm honored to be here today with us. Um, and I think in some ways I could dismiss you to go to Bible study and you would have already had a rich and fulfilling morning here. Um, but I think we should continue in worship through the proclamation of the gospel and the word of God in that way. And so um, before we do that, let me pray for this moment and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Lord God, you are our shepherd and you are with us and it brings us comfort. So this morning as we unpack Psalm 23 again, as we look at verse four, will you be with us? Will you let us know that your presence is with us and help us to walk away feeling encouraged, feeling connected to you, and knowing that you, our shepherd, are with us even in the valley. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Trey, you read this so well, I won't reread it for us, but Psalm 23, uh, we've been walking through it Verses one, two, and three, as the pastor has done over the past few weeks, are very encouraging. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And then verse four takes a little bit of a shift. Uh, one theologian says it's the shift from abundant ease to fearful threat. And in my new role at the church, sometimes, sadly, I get to know you when your life shifts from abundant ease to fearful threat. Some of you, I sit down in my office for the first time when life has taken a turn for the worse. Um, and I wonder if a lot of you in the room, given just the reality of the last few years, might identify within your own lives having that shift from what seemed like ease into now kind of a threatening valley. Um, I was thinking with Ryan as I was preparing for this and I asked him like, who do you think has had just the best year of their life in the past you know, 12, 14, 16 months? Uh, and we kind of went through it. We, we actually have to admit because some other factors that made the pandemic difficult for so many, we didn't have to do, we didn't have to decide kids going to school, um, our jobs were pretty easy to do from home, et cetera. And so we don't really get to count ourselves among all those that had as much of um, the threat of all. But here's what People Magazine says, the person who had the best 2021, any guesses? You know, time person of the year was Elon Musk, that's not really where we're going with it. The person who had the best 2021 was Britney Spears. The runner's up, the runners up, were, there were 10 of them, but two that stood out to me. Uh, okay, you're gonna have to tell me the name. Giannis and Tenta Kempo. Help me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was the guard for the Milwaukee Bucks who led them to the championship, which was a huge deal for Milwaukee. And so he had just a breakthrough year, a great year. And another was J Jason Sudeikis, who was a star in Apple TV's Ted Lasso. So if you can picture Ted Lasso, 
Giannis, and Britney Spears, at least those three people had a successful, according to the world and People Magazine, a really good 2021. Here's what Britney Spears said about that. Here's what People Magazine said, and then there's a quote from her. With the groundswell of support from fans and a new legal team, Spears finally won in court, and the 13-year conservatorship that kept her under her father's control came to an end on November 12th. Newly engaged to Sam as Gari, the star said she was just grateful for being able to have keys to my car, be independent, and feel like a woman. It was a record high year for Britney Spears. But for the rest of us, many of us, I think we might feel like we have left abundant ease, not the best year or two of our lives, and we have landed in the fearful threat verse four reality of life. So I acknowledge some of you, it doesn't fit. But for others, you're like, that is where I am at. And luckily the Psalm uh, addresses it very clearly with David. So with David, the shepherd, he describes it like this. He says, I'm walking through the darkest valley. That's what the NIV says. But when we memorize it as kids, we're, we're walking through the what? The valley of the shadow of death. Yes, the valley of the shadow of death. And David would have known in his mind as a shepherd in the Israeli desert, what he, when he pictures the valley of the shadow of death, it has a certain landscape to it. And there's a quote uh, from Gerald Wilson that I wanna read to you. Think of it kind of National Geographic style. This is what the valley of the shadow of death might have been what David has in his mind when he's picturing this. So, and it'll be on the screen for you. In the migration through the spring landscape in search of ever-elusive grass and water, the flock must pass at times into and through deep and rugged wadis, dry stream beds cut through the semi-desert hills by the seasonal torrents unleashed by the winter rains. The air in the bottom of these wadis is heavy with the rising heat of the day, and the canyon depths are swathed in the dark shadows as the rising cliff walls exclude the distant sun. At this moment of crossing the wadi floor, the pleasant scenes of green pastures and still waters seem far removed. There's not grass or water. The heat can be oppressive, and the whole flock must struggle up the steep sides of the canyon to resume its journey toward the next feeding place. There's a picture of it that I've pulled up. Let's see if we can get that. Imagine this as the wadi, as the valley of the shadow of death that David is leading his sheep through. Uh, one commentator said this is like the road to Jericho, where the Good Samaritan has his moment. Uh, this would be treacherous. You don't, right, you don't really know what's around each corner. It's a stream bed, but it's very dry. It's only a stream bed for like a month a year when the, when the snow melts and comes down. For many of us, the valley of the shadow of death is the prominent metaphor for your life right now. It feels like you're in the valley, not in the green pasture. And it's such a compelling phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us, we've heard it our whole lives, so we kind of forget about it, but what a picture image that creates for us. And in Hebrew, it's actually two words put together. It's a compound word. So the, the shadow of death is Saul Maveth. Saul, shadow, and Maveth, death. But one commentator says when you put this together, it becomes an, like an ultra word picture for you. And it becomes what he says, something like the shadowiest of all shadows. 
To me, that sounds like something you'd see in like a kid's cartoon. Like if uh, Mufasa is talking to Simba, and he says, Mufasa, or Simba, everything the light touches is yours. And then Simba says, Dad, what about the shadowy place over there? And Mufasa says, that's beyond all borders. You must never go there, Simba. That's the shadowiest of all shadows, right? And don't you wish that it was just a place over there, the shadowiest of all shadows, and Simba, you can't go there, but as long as you don't, you get all the land, and you're happy, and you're fulfilled. But the reality is, for all of us, if we live long enough, the death-like shadow will cast over us. When I think of the dark shadow, I think of one story from my childhood. We had this lake house that's uh, in the middle of nowhere, and when you get to our cabin, there's a little gate, and there's like three people who own lots who have keys to this gate. And when we get there, we would unlock the gate, swing it open, and go into about a quarter mile down the road. It would be our cabin. But every once in a while, we'd arrive at the gate, and the key wouldn't be there, because we'd hit it. Because we share it with other people, they would have lost the key, misplaced it, maybe a raccoon came. And so every once in a while, we'd come, and there'd be no way to, enter the, to go through the gate. And someone would have to walk to our cabin, unlock it, find the spare key, and come back. Well, one night, we got there, and it was pitch black dark. The moon wasn't out, the, the, the clouds had overshadowed it, the tall trees had left it, and so we're in the pitch black, and it's the four of us, my mom and dad, and little maybe seven-year-old me and 10-year-old my brother. And so my dad looks through his truck and he's, and he's trying to find some kind of light that can help walk the 100, uh, maybe 400 meters to the cabin and find it. And the only thing we can find for the four of us to walk to the cabin and back is my brother's Game Boy night sight. So I have a picture of it. So some of you, it might be your kids, your grandkids, some of it, it might be you. The, the Game Boy was very popular when I was a child, and the night sight was an attachment that you could get for it, and, and it, it barely, barely illuminated the screen enough where you could play at night, or in the, you know, in the back of your parents' car till your batteries ran out, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the next service, we will have to lament that they have no idea what it's like to suffer in these ways, to do these things. So I'll make fun of them, don't worry. But for us, we remember the evolution of technology and how cool it was to have a Game Boy and that it had a little light that you could do it. But the only thing in the truck, the only thing that we could find was the night sight from the Game Boy. <laughs> and so we walked, literally, we'd put it on the, my dad, we'd put it on the ground, and we'd take one little step, and then all you could see was the next maybe two feet from that little nightlight. It ran the batteries out, and it was, for me, a little kid, it was scary, because all you could see was your feet in front of you, and maybe the next step. Even on what used to be, normally was, familiar territory, we were just out of our sorts. And I think sometimes when we talk about this valley of the shadow of death, and whatever that looks like in our life, it's like walking familiar territory, but all you have is a Game Boy Night Sight. <laughs> And it's like you can't trust the next step in front of you. And sometimes life just feels that way. And I think for some of us, this, this death shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, it can really look like you've had to walk through the loss of a loved one. You may really be grieving a real death in your life. But for others, it's the death of a dream or a hope, the death of a relationship the death of a business endeavor, the death of your personal security, or the predictability and normalcy of life. There can be so many small deaths that we experience in our life. And like I said before, if we live long enough, if we live at all, we will encounter, indeed, the shadowiest of all shadows in our life. 
But for David, the valley and the shadows was only part of the story. How did David walk through the valley? What was his survival technique? He said, in this valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through the darkest valley, says the NIV, I will fear no evil. Fear is an interesting thing. People do all sorts of things to try to conquer their fear or make themselves feel like they're in control or have all this security. We have seen it most lately with every roll of toilet paper in Costco gone anytime there's any kind of urgent pandemic, right? The snowpocalypse last year was the most obvious. Well, really when the pandemic hit, then when any type of snow, we had to be home for 48 hours. And so I went to Kroger would that be Wednesday night to prep for what was coming? I went to Kroger to get us a few things, a few staples, and I went through the parking lot and then immediately just left. I just left the parking lot because I saw people coming out of Kroger with baskets full, and I understand, I'm not, of toilet paper, but full, like weeks worth. Uh, starter logs, many, many, many. So there's a little bit of residual what if trauma. Uh, but there's so many things people do to, to stock up or barricade or protect themselves to try to eliminate their life from fear, our lives from fear. Um, and we, some of us do it by over shopping, but others, we lean on our intellect knowing that we can solve all the problems that come our way. We get bigger weapons or barricade our homes or we buy more insurance all out of a desire to just fear less or be more secure or in control of our circumstances. Um, and some of that is good, but to an extent where you think that's the only thing that you can put your trust in, it's gonna fall short. We can't fear no evil because we've got all the smarts and experience and expertise. We can't just DIY our way out of the valley. Why does David fear no evil? He says, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Verse four marks a shift, and we talked about it being from ease to threat, but it also marks a shift in language. It goes from third person language into second person, which any English majors in here, or maybe Trey, you're learning that in school, you can help us. Uh, but you see these statements, the Lord, he leads me, he guides me. And then it says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. It changes in language, it gets more personal and more intimate. Throughout the Old Testament and throughout the history of Israel, up until this point with David, God has assured his people, I am with you. I put a quote on the screen, it's got a lot of scripture references that I won't read for you, but this is Rolf A. Jacobson, Old Testament scholar. Here's what he says about the I am with you. Perhaps the most basic theological promise is the assurance, I am with you. This is the promise that God offered Jacob. It's the word of assurance God proclaimed to young Jeremiah, which he in turn passed on to the people of Judah. It's the promise that the Lord spoke to the exiles through the anonymous prophet known as Second Isaiah. It's the heart of the message that Haggai announced to those who had returned from the exile. And it is the promise that fueled the early church for perseverance and mission. God, throughout history with his people, has promised them and assured them, I am with you. It's the dominant story. And I would offer to us today, the best response that we can have back to God is just the confession of trust like David, you are with me. God is present even when evil and danger are present. We can sometimes slip into a reductionist mindset that says God is only present where good things are. 
But this scripture today tells us that God doesn't abandon us when hard things are around us. God is with us, just like he's promised throughout the scriptures. Another quote from Jacobson. This is the true setting of the psalm. The existential space of being in the presence of something that is terrifying and a space in which every reflective human being finds himself or herself at some point at a space which according to the witness of the poem, the Lord can also be found. The truth of it, in the presence of something terrifying and the presence of the Lord with us. This is the truth of the psalm. Jacobson goes on to say, it is an element that critiques and subverts the dominant cultural theology of glory, which can only understand God's presence in the good moments. This psalm asserts that yes, the Lord is present in green pastures, peaceful waters, and along the paths of righteousness, but the Lord is also present under the sign of the opposite in the darkest valley. In my role at the church, I oversee the care ministry, among other things, and so often uh, when something hard happens in someone's life, the people around them will say something like, I just don't know what to do. I'm not sure how to handle this. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. How do I walk into that room? How do I go visit my friend? I don't know. And over and over, those who have been through something like that will say back, it just mattered that they showed up. I don't know what they said. I don't know what scriptures they brought. All I know is that they visited me or they sat with me. They came by when I needed them. Presence matters so much. When we walk through the hard things in life, we can trust that God is with us and it changes everything. If we had Gen Z in the audience, they would say, okay, that's cool, but why does that matter, right? That's kind of the tagline, and we all wanna know that. But when we talk about God's presence with us, why does that actually make a difference? Does faith really matter in a time like this is the question John Claypool asks. And I would say, when God is your shepherd and you are a helpless sheep, it sure does. Dr. Wiles has talked over the past few weeks that sheep are, at the end of the day, defenseless animals in need of a shepherd. He said that several weeks in a row. So why is David comforted? He says, you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why is he comforted by the Lord's presence? Because the Lord brings with him action and power, the rod and the staff. We're familiar with the iconic picture of a sheep, aren't we, on the felt boards? Almost every shepherd always has with him, or her, maybe, uh, a, a rod or a staff, right? Well, there's, there's theory that in, Palestine, in early Palestine, the, the shepherds had two implements that they would have a smaller club-like weapon to defend wolves from the sheep, and then a longer crook-like staff to guide and direct their sheep. The shepherds would have specialized tools that they could guide, correct, defend their sheep with. Growing up, we would always go visit my grandfather's house, my, my papa, and he had this wonderful workshop garage, and he, y'all may relate to this, he had a pegboard with all his tools hanging on the pegboard, but then he took a Sharpie and he outlined each tool on the pegboard so that if 
anybody but one of the grandkids would take his loppers, his wire cutters, whatever, there would be this, this little crime scene shadow <laughs> of what we did. And my grandfather was a, kind of a hero of mine for a lot of reasons, but one, he had a specialized tool for everything. Why wouldn't the shepherd be the same? But even more, why wouldn't God be the same? Equipped in each circumstance with a specialized tool to defend or guide or protect us in, the, in our darkest time of need. Why does it comfort us that God is with us? Because God has specialized tools and cares enough to carry them with us and be with us to guide and protect and defend and comfort. I wonder if we forget sometimes that God really is with us in those ways. We can slip into, in our culture, thinking like deists. Yes, God exists, yes, he created the world, but he, but he would never intervene in our human lives like this. Thomas Jefferson was one of the most famous deists. And if we're not careful, we can begin to believe it. I believe in some intellectual ascent that God created us, that he put us in motion. We can look at the world and say, yes, God's a creator. But the idea that God would care for me, that he would see me, that he would guide me in my life, that's too far-fetched, we can think. And all of a sudden, we slip into a Christian heresy. <laughs> that God created us, but then abandoned us. He doesn't really care about us. And that might be all well and good, except the crux of our faith is that God did, in fact, intervene in human history, including but not limited to his incarnational presence in the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who lived, walked among us, and died on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the most full expression of I am with you that's ever been. So lest we believe God is up there and he's watching it, now he is down here and he is with us in the hardest parts of our life. I will fear no evil, David says, because your protection and your guidance, your club and your crook, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, he says. Actually, one commentator translates not just comfort, he said that's too soft, but courage. Your rod and your staff courage me. They give me courage. The early church was built on the courage of believers, walking through such trauma and death, but they knew that God was with them, and they knew that the Spirit of God had commissioned them and that they were able to walk into hard places. So it is with us today. God's rod and his staff encourage us to go into the hardest places. And because of God's great, I am with you, and our confession back, you are with me, we can be courageous in the valleys of our life. Let us pray. Lord God, we want to be people who have courage, your courage, in the valleys of our life. Lord, will you help us to trust the promises of the scripture? That, one, that you are with us, but two, that you're a skilled tradesman, you're skilled and equipped to guide, protect, comfort, and to help us through the dark valleys in our lives. And so may we have your hope, your resurrection hope, 
because we know that you're with us and that you can comfort us. Lord, I pray for this group that you might speak to them where they are. They may have had the best year. They may be riding a high. And Lord, I, pr I pray thanks for that. And Lord, I pray that when the valley does come, that they will know that you're with them, even if they can only see right in front of them. And we ask this all in the rich name of Jesus Christ. Amen.